Hello, and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast, a show created by an anxiety specialist and neuroscientist, me, that offers unique, practical, and actionable advice to help you understand what anxiety truly is and exactly what you can do to empower yourself to resolve it. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Kennedy, an MD who suffered with crippling anxiety for 30-plus years, and traditional therapy from psychiatrists and psychologists really didn't help me feel better. And I also didn't like being on psych meds. In 2013, after burning out and leaving medical practice, I came to the conclusion that if I was ever going to heal my anxiety, I would have to do it myself. And that's exactly what I did, drawing from experiences with psychedelics and holistic healing and combining those modalities with my scientific academic background in medicine, neuroscience, and developmental psychology. Here on the Anxiety Arcs podcast, I offer a distinctly non-traditional and non-medical approach to understanding and healing anxiety. So despite the fact I'm trained as a physician, in no way is what I say and suggest to be construed as medical advice because none of the ways I use to resolve anxiety has anything to do with traditional allopathic medicine. From my own healing, I've created a distinctly non-traditional understanding and approach that helps thousands of people from all over the world understand and relieve their chronic anxiety. So if you're ready, let's get into today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast. I am your host, Dr. Russell Kennedy, a doctor and neuroscientist who struggled with anxiety, crippling anxiety for many, 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 many years before I finally found my way out. And it wasn't through traditional therapy. It was through finding the way out through psychedelics, uh, which I don't recommend actually. Uh, and different types of somatic therapy, internal family systems therapy. That's how I got free of anxiety. That's why I wrote the book, Anxiety Rx. That's why I created the program, MBRx, so that you don't have to suffer with anxiety the way that I did. Today, I want to talk about why our children are suffering with anxiety so much. I remember a number of years ago, my youngest stepson, Michael, went to high school in grade nine. And I remember talking to the counselor there and he said about a third of the class, the grade nine class, because in Canada, grade nine is sort of the first year of senior high school. About a third of the senior high school class of, of the grade nine class are, are missing for the first three to four months because they're all so anxious. And I was just thinking, when what, what kind of a world are we living in now where a third of our grade nine, so they're going to be 14 years old. A third of 14-year-olds are so afraid that they're not even going to school. Now, I didn't like school either when I was younger, and I, and I, that's a story I could probably tell you guys about skipping. <laughs> I skipped, we had uh, eight classes in my high school, and I skipped one of them. For, like I hated it so much that I skipped that, so I would go home, I would find ways of just getting out of this one class. And they didn't, they didn't find out about it until the very end of the year. Like I got away with it, I thought, and then I got caught and then that didn't work out so well. But the reason I, I ditched that class is I hated the prof. He just, he created so much anxiety in me. He was so demanding and such a jerk. That's the term I'm going to use for the podcast is jerk that he created so much anxiety in me that I skipped his class. I went through the other seven classes, but I skipped his class. Anyway, I digress. So a third 
of our grade nine students are skipping school or staying home because they're sick or whatever. So why are our kids suffering so much with anxiety these days? Well, there's a number of reasons for it. First one, I think, is that the world is just energetically more anxious. I think there's just more anxiety in the world. COVID certainly supercharged that as well and didn't give people a way of connecting connecting with each other. I mean, we were starting to get disconnected before COVID too, and I was hoping that COVID would be the great reckoner and we would start seeing geez, it's so important for us to connect with each other. And we, so far, we haven't kind of made our way back to each other from COVID. And hopefully, maybe we will. I mean, I, I, I don't know. But our kids are really suffering. And I think they, our kids feel the energy of the parents. They, I think they also, to get a little woo-woo, Dr. Kennedy getting a little woo here, as I think there's an energetic system in the world. And I think the energy is just so much more intense these days. And I think that's why we have more kids with autism. We have more kids with emotional dysregulation. because Partly because the parents have emotional dysregulation. And partly because it's just a more intense world. It's really, you know, AI is starting to take over jobs and it's just creating pressure on families. And as we get more separated from each other, because as Gordon Neufeld says, you know, my mentor in developmental psychology, all anxiety is separation anxiety. And then I add on to that, yeah, and it's separation from within yourself, mostly. And that's why I wrote the book and, and made the program because it's how to draw yourself back into your into your into yourself. And I think one of the reasons why kids are more anxious is they're just born into a very sensitive world. There's a saying I love that says the trauma and drama of a child will land squarely in the heart of its, its most sensitive child. And I see that in families. I see families of where there's three kids and two of them are fine. You know, they're, they seem to be, and one of them is just really, really sensitive. And I see a lot of the traumas of families, you know, alcoholism, abuse, neglect, overwork. I see them follow through families. When I was a family doctor, I would see these patterns go through families. And I think our children really are sensitive, especially the ones, you know, ironically, we are selecting for sensitive children in the environment that we're in. And then that just gets magnified. So I always like to say, if you grow up in a secure, attached, healthy, attuned world with your parents, you can be sensitive and be absolutely fine. But if you are born sensitive and you're born into a world where there's trauma or neglect or abuse, loss, abandonment, having to grow up too soon, shame, all these things make us more sensitive and more likely to go over to the dark side. Use the force, Luke. And that's what happens. I think those sensitive ones among us, when they're born sensitive, now we actually see them a lot more clearly because they're born autistic or they're on the spectrum. You know, these are sensitive children and we're medicating them and we're doing all these. And I'm not, you know, I'm not 100% against medication on some level, but man, it's it's a tough world for the kids. It really is. So that's one reason. We're we're we have this really sensitive environment that we're into, this really stressful, intense environment that the kids are born into. Second thing, we have this social engagement system that's in all our minds and bodies as human beings. So 
eye contact, tone of voice, prosody of voice, facial expression, body language, all these things is what we use to connect with each other. And we mature our social engagement system with face-to-face contact. Now, it may not be positive contact. It could be anger. It could be um, frustration, whatever. But we have to see this as children. We have to see anger. We have to see frustration. We have to see love. We have to see contentment. When we see that, part of us as human beings picks that up as children. Children are emotional sponges and information sponges as well. So we pick this stuff up as, as kids and it matures this social engagement system in us. Now, when our social engagement system is matured, then we can soothe other people and we can also soothe ourselves. And it's been shown that empathy is dropping among our, our kids because they're not maturing this social engagement system. Now, why is that? Well, a lot of it is that we're giving our kids these screens and I'm not vilifying parents giving their child screens because it's just a fact of life. It's it's just how it is. But if most of or a lot of your child's social engagement comes from screens, and again, COVID made this much worse, but if a lot of your social engagement comes from this flat screen, you don't get the nuances of emotion. You don't get these these abil- this ability to read other people's emotion because we're not getting enough face-to-face or our kids aren't getting enough face-to-face contact and interaction with each other to be able to mature this social engagement system. And if you don't mature the social engagement system, you can't soothe other people and you can't soothe yourself. So empathy drops and your ability to self-soothe drops. So And then you get a bunch of grade nines who can't go into school because they're too sensitive. It's a big problem. So screens are a huge, huge issue because it's, again, this sort of dopamine versus serotonin thing. The screens are filled with with images that just fire up our dopamine over and over and over again. And that, for a human being, is like crack. You know, if you can go on your smartphone and see 10 beautiful destinations under 30 seconds, that's hard for any other human being to compete with. It's so seductive. And this is a a mass generalization here about uh, neurotransmitters, but dopamine is kind of like the molecule of more. There's a great book that's called The Molecule of More. And it's about always wanting something that's outside of your reach, outside of your extra personal space. space. That's, That's dopamine. And in our social media world, we are fixated on going somewhere else, being somewhere else. And it just happens so quickly and insidiously that we are focused more on our screens than we are on other human beings. And that's and it, and with AI and this sort of stuff, this is just getting more and more seductive because they know what what, what attracts us. They know how to attract us. They know how to keep our attention at least for a short period of time over and over and over again. Zombie so scrolling Instagram for one. So if you are addicted to your screens, which most of us are. To be honest, most of us are. I am. And we don't take a detox from it every once in a while. We get into this situation where we can't be happy with anything because we've trained our brains that a better thing is coming along in another two or three seconds over and over and over again. And I used cartoons for children as an example. Back in the 70s and 80s, 
there was a, a cartoon called Bugs Bunny Roadrunner. And the Roadrunner and the Coyote would always be in this battle and the Roadrunner would always win and the Coyote would always lose. But the Coyote would stay on screen for seven to eight seconds. You know, he'd be walking through the desert for seven to 10 seconds or eight seconds. And now the scene changes less than two seconds. So we're teaching our kids, don't pay attention to this image that you, you're seeing right now because there's another better image coming along in less than two seconds. So no wonder our kids have ADD. No wonder our kids have difficulty concentrating because just the cartoons alone are training their brains to not pay attention and to just immediate gratification, next dopamine hit, next dopamine hit. And it all comes down to money, but that's another podcast, but we'll, we'll do that again at some point in the future. But it's really understanding that dopamine is being used against us. And it's like we, we don't ever seem to tire of it. You know, we just keep going and going and going and going. It's like the Energizer dopamine bunny. And on the other day on threads, I put a, I put a post that said, the grass is always dopaminer on the other side of the hill, which is exactly what dopamine is. It's this, this thing that okay, I'm not really happy with what I have now. So there is this thing in my mind that if I get this other thing, then I'll be happy. But the thing is we acclimatize, we habituate is kind of like the, the psychological term. We habituate to whatever we have. So if you win the lottery and for the first six months, you're on top of the world, but after a while, that just becomes your life. Wherever you go, there you are. So you're stuck there. So we aren't allowing our kids to stay in this serotonin-based kind of here and now mindfulness environment. And one of the things that we used to have to deal with as kids, I know I did, was boredom. So when you were young, you were 12, you said, hey, mom, I'm bored. I'm bored. And you would have to find your freaking way out of your own boredom. Now there is no boredom because all the kids have to do I'd sound like an old man. All the kids have to do now is go on their iPads. All the kids have to do now when they have any sort of negative emotion is go to their phone. It's such a brilliant distraction for people, but it's also teaching people that you can't stay. It's teaching you you can't stay with negative emotion, which is basically almost the definition of trauma and stress, not being able to stay with an uncomfortable emotion enough to metabolize it, enough to actually allow yourself to feel it and work through it. You got to feel it to heal it, that kind of thing. You've got to be able to sit with that negative emotion and know that you can handle it. And I just did a, an episode on this podcast about sitting with your negative emotion, sitting with your alarm. Can you sit with that? Can you allow it to be there and just metabolize it? Because if we don't, we're victims. As soon as we get alarmed, we either go into our heads and start worrying or overthinking or ruminating or going into our phones or our iPads or whatever and distracting. And we never actually learn how to deal with negative emotion because we've never had to deal with it. So our kids are facing the same thing. They never have to deal with negative emotion because every time they feel it, they just go on their phones. So when they go away to university and they leave their home, they leave their parents, they try using the phone, but it doesn't work anymore because it's not, the phone isn't powerful enough to distract them away from negative emotion. And when they get the negative emotion, 
they can't handle it because they've never been shown how to handle it. They've never actually sat with it for any length of time to know, to tell their unconscious and their conscious mind, you know what, we could handle this. I don't like this. I don't like this feeling, but I can handle it. I've been here before. It's, it's uncomfortable. I know it's going to pass. And there is this thing that we have in neuroscience called the recency bias, which is basically how you feel now is how you project you're going to feel forever. And this is the reason why some people commit suicide is because they get in depression and it just appears to them that this is going to be the rest of their lives. And I hear people all the time saying, you know, I was suicidal with depression five years ago. My life is so much better now. I can't imagine, you know, how I, I felt so hopeless and lost. Well, Part of it is neurochemistry. Part of it is you're just, you feel lost. Like you can't, you can't find yourself when you're always distracting from negative emotion, from negative feeling. So negative feeling is just part of life. The other example that I see is teens when they break up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. They freak out because they've never actually been able to metabolize or shown how to metabolize negative emotions. So it just feels like they've been thrown off a cliff and they're falling and falling and falling and there is no help. There is no, there is no way back from that. So they commit suicide. It's pretty serious. I mean, what we're doing to our kids with this immediate gratification and the adults, it's not like the adults are, you know, we're scot-free, but you know, if you're born before kind of 1990, um, I think we have a little bit more resilience. You know, we weren't raised in this kind of immediate gratification internet environment. So we did learn how to deal with a negative emotion to some extent. So that's one of the other reasons. So the first is that there's more energy in the environment, negative energy. The second is that the social engagement system isn't being matured, mostly because we are on screens and which is kind of okay for adults, but in the developing brain, especially before five, because 80% of your brain developments before the age of five years old. So if your kid's on an iPad at two, you know, you are basically training that child to develop and depend on an instrument, depend on an iPad. Now, I don't want to guilt you out. I just want you to be aware that this is what happens. This is why our kids are so racked with anxiety because they never really learn how to sit with negative emotion. There's other reasons why our kids are, are suffering. And I think that changing roles, male-female roles, um, men aren't really making overtures to connect. I, I notice a lot that the kids aren't pairing up these days. They hang out in these big amorphous groups or they're at home alone with their parents. I just see us becoming this really solitary society, which is another reason why our kids are suffering. They don't have that social net. They don't have that connection. They don't have a group of people that they can hang around and see sadness, frustration, anger, um, contentment, love, connection. And if, if it's not modeled for your brain, your brain can't get around it. It can't. You know, it's, it, it reminds me of like Seinfeld when he, when he talks about Halloween. He says, you know, when you're, when you're a kid, and this is not the best Seinfeld impression, when you're a kid, your whole, your whole life is getting candy. It's just get candy, get candy, get candy. That's, that's all your whole life is. You know, school, work, obstacles, these are just obstacles or what, 
scoot it up. But these are just these are just obstacles in the way of getting more candy. And I think we don't have this connection anymore with our kids. Our kids aren't connecting with each other anymore. And that social engagement system isn't getting built because that social engagement system is what allows us to handle negative emotion. And if we're not building our social engagement system through eye contact, tone of voice, positive voice, body language, connection, human connection, our kids are sitting ducks for anxiety. Okay, so what do we do about it? Well, limit limit your kids' screen time. Limit your kids' screen time. When you're around the dinner table, make faces. Say, what's my face doing now? And like, make an angry face. What's my face doing now? Make a happy face. Really we have a part of our brain that's devoted specifically to recognizing faces. And if you have a stroke in that area, it's, it's a condition called propopagnosia, which means that you can't recognize faces. So we are, we are biologically designed to connect to faces. And we're not doing that because it does soothe us. Connecting to faces connects us. Even if that face is frustrated or angry or mad, we still get information from that. We still feel a sense of connection with that. And if we're not getting that sense of connection, if we're not getting that soothing, we're not maturing this social engagement system and we're not going to be able to soothe ourselves. And anxiety and depression, eating disorders, personality disorders, OCD is going to run rampant, which it is, which it is, which it is. So what do we do about it? Well, we start getting people connected with your kids, like being connected with your kids. Touch. Like the teenagers are often like, they're not too crazy about, you know, personal touch and that kind of thing. But it's so important putting your hand on your, over your child's heart, putting the other child on their back, like encircling their heart. Even if you just stay there, even if you don't say anything, even if you don't look them in the eyes, just that sense of touch is so soothing for people. And then speech, your positive voice, how you speak to your kids. Is there love? Is there, is there some inflection in there? Or is it you're so stressed as an adult, you're like, do this, do that. We can't, we, we're late. We've got to do this. Like put some prosody in your voice. Put some connection there. I love yous are critical. There are so many kids out there who just aren't getting it. You know, if you grew up, um, in sort of a British or a reserve family like I did, there were no I love yous. You know, you, you had a roof over your head. You had, um, you know, three square meals a day. And that was, you were assumed that you were loved because you were sheltered and you were fed. And it's not enough. It's not enough. We need to be able to show our kids that how, how to connect with themselves, how to touch themselves, how to find that love, and even find their alarm. You know, older kids, 13, 14, 15, 16, you know, where do you feel that in your body when you feel bullied? Where do you feel that in the body when dad goes away for work for 10 days or on deployment in the military? Where do you feel that? Find it. Use that as a way of, and you put your hand over their alarm. Have them put their hand over their alarm. Connect. Facial expression is so critical. There is a theory that the more the more words you know about emotion, the more emotionally intelligent you are. And I got that from Lisa Feldman Barrett's book on how emotions are made, which is a great book. Is that the more words you know for emotion, it you tend to be more emotionally literate. 
we don't know a lot. The kids aren't getting a lot of emotional schooling, learning, teaching. And that's what we need. We need to be connected emotionally for us to grow physically, for us to be without illness, mental and physical. So it's really showing our kids that they are seen, heard, loved, and protected. And there's a number of ways of doing that. Another thing that we talk about is bridging with our children. So you never drop your kid off at school and say, okay, I'll see you later. Have a good day at school. You always say something like, hey, I'll be back here at 3.30, and then we're going to go to the mall and look at those shorts that you wanted. Or then we're going to go for ice cream, or then we're going to go to the park, or then we're going to go visit you know, your favorite aunt. There's always a connection. You're always bridging the next connection. And I've talked about this on a podcast a long time ago, but it's so critical to understand for our kids. They need to know that they are supported, seen, heard, loved, and protected. And bridging is one of the most important things you can do for a child at any age, even in your partner, even in your relationship with your partner. It's like, okay, I'm going out to play golf now. Uh, I will be back at 9.30. We'll watch um, uh, Ted Lasso. We'll watch an episode of Ted Lasso. We'll have some popcorn. This bridging is something that we're also losing in society. And bridging is so critical, especially for our kids. So dropping them off for a visit with their friends, dropping them off at the mall, have a good time, be safe. I'm, I'll be right back here at seven o'clock and then we're going to go over to Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> I don't know. Just, just make that connection so that they feel connected while you're apart. And I, I think that my wife and I, Sin, did a, um, I, I'm not sure if I played it yet or I'm going to play it uh, on the podcast later. But it's being connected while you're apart. It's important for your your romantic relationships, for your relationships with your parents. It's important to be connected while apart with your kids, especially with your kids. Show them that they're seen, heard, loved, and protected every day. You can't you can't overload a kid with love. You just can't. And when a kid gets enough love, they'll start pushing back a little bit. And it's kind of a sign, like okay. You know, and it's kind of like the the younger version of do it myself. You know, when they're when they're two and a half or three, and you're you're gonna tie their shoes or whatever, and they say do it myself. I'm gonna do it myself. You know, that's a sign that they they've got enough love, they've got enough in the bank, in their emotional bank, that they can try things. And I think I'm branching out a little bit here, but I think dads with daughters, and I know I was like this with Leandra, is I would push her a little bit. You know, I'd push her, you know, to go and, and go see those other kids on the playground, go and make friends and that kind of thing. And what I'm learning now is if, if a child feels seen, heard, loved, and protected, mostly loved, they will just naturally emerge into the world feeling safe, feeling protected. But our kids aren't getting that. Our kids are just not getting this sense that they're seen, heard, loved, and protected. And a lot of that I don't want to say it's their own fault, but a lot of that is because they are distracted by these screens. And screens are great. They're amazing, but they're addictive and especially addictive in the developing brain. And like I said, 80% of brain developments in the first five years. So really restricting iPad stuff in the first five years is critical. And then just personal touch, telling them that they're loved, bridging, Keeping them connected 
it's really, that's, that's what allows us to get this unconscious sense that we are looked after. Even if our parent isn't around, we're still looked after. And a lot of us didn't get that. I know I didn't get that. So I think it's critical to show our kids that they are seen, heard, loved, and protected. And if that becomes our mantra, then so be it. Because our kids are really suffering. They are really suffering. And we need to do better. We're the ones in charge. We need to do better. We need to show our kids they are seen, heard, loved, and protected. I love yous, personal touch, just facial expressions, connection, just as much connection. Like overload your kid with connection. If they, if they resist it, fine. But give them the option. And that's it for this time. Thanks for listening. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And if the Anxiety Rx podcast resonates with you, consider getting my book, also coincidentally called Anxiety Rx. Or you can follow me on any of the social media platforms at The Anxiety MD or my website, www.theanxietymd.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you the next time on The Anxiety Rx podcast.